This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is The Buck Sexton Show. Dean Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hunt. Thank you very much for being here. Great to have you as always. With each passing day, it feels like my voice is uh, coming back to full steam, which is, for someone who does radio, uh, an exciting thing. It's weird when you can't speak for a few days and you speak for a living, so... It's nice to have gotten that. Uh, not complete. I'm not completely out of the woods on that, but it's a good bit, a good bit better than it was. Uh, also, those of you who called in last night, listened last night to the inaugural, the uh, first ever Buck Sexton with America Now in syndication. Thank you very much for for that. It was great. I had Team Buck lighting up the lines for the entire three hours of the show. I could have taken even more calls than I did. And it's just nice to know that when I say, hey, can you can you all have my back? You literally have my back. I mean, you're calling in, ready to just talk to me, wish me good luck, congrats, uh, help me get back on, on track with uh, a news story or want to share some of your insights. Uh, it really is a collaborative effort. So I, I appreciate that very much. It was a, an incredibly long day yesterday. I started at 5 o'clock in the morning. I finished at 9 o'clock at night. So... I did five, uh, well, yeah, five hours of radio and th- uh, three hours of TV plus a TV hit. So that's a long, that's a long day uh, for anybody. And it, as I say it out loud now, I think may- maybe I need to chill. Maybe that's a little too much. Uh, but thank you, all of you. And if you want to listen to the show, if you missed it, you can go to AmericaNowRadio.com. They can play the podcast there, uh, which is free and you can listen to the whole show. I'll be back tonight. I mean, the plan is to be back. Every night, 6 to 9 Eastern, and uh, you can listen on the iHeartRadio app. But really, the best place to go is AmericanNowRadio.com. It has everything right there. You can click Listen Live, and uh, or if you have happen to be in a place where you have a radio station, that's cool, too. Go for that. So, okay, some things to uh, hit on today. Uh, and phone lines are open, by the way, if you want to call in chat. You got any thoughts on what we should uh, hit today or any thoughts on... The show tonight, it's all just, it's all just now a continuous radio buckathon uh, with, with five hours of radio a day, um, but do call in 888-900-3393. So I wanted to spend some time on the latest Trump dust-up with the press. This is going to be, there's no way around this. It's going to be a lot of these going forward. There's just going to be people that decide that they hate Trump for whatever reason, and that's that's filtered into the media now, and that's what they believe. So you have this whole terrorist attack uh, feud that's happening, or, or a feud over terrorist attacks. Better way to put it. 
Trump said this about it. Can we play uh, when he says that terrorist attacks have gone unreported? Please uh, hit that. Shermont. It's gotten to a point where it's not even being reported. And in many cases, the very, very dishonest press doesn't want to report it. They have their reasons, and you understand that. All right. Now, this, of course, is leading to a a huge outcry in the of people who are saying we cover terrorist attacks wall to wall. We devote tremendous resources to covering terrorist attacks. And they're all very, very upset about this. I saw some particularly from uh, CNN, some other places where prominent journalists of one kind or another are upset about this. And you had Trump responding or the Trump team responding with the release of a list of 78 examples from September 2014 through December 2016. Terrorist attacks involving jihadists, and they have a whole list. And the White House says they're underreported. I have to say that I, I think it is, um, in, it is incorrect to say that they were underreported. I don't think that's an accurate description. What you can say is that the way the press reports on terrorist attacks is constantly influenced by their political biases. What you can say is that the way that the media, uh, particularly in the first 48 to 72 hours after a terror attack, the way that they respond to something as obvious as a guy saying, Allahu Akbar, I'm doing this for ISIS, and the target set matches up with what ISIS is going after, and the tactics, and ISIS claims responsibility through one of its quasi-official channels online. And then you'll see people who are paid a lot of money to bring information to the public. That's really their job. I know they think of their job as something else sometimes, like their job is um, is more a function of... Uh, trying to highlight their how awesome they are. I, I don't know. But the job is to bring information to the public. And they don't do a particularly good job of that when it comes to uh, terrorist attacks. You see, what we know, uh, what we know from all of this is that every time there's an attack, they want to pretend that a normal person can't come to a straightforward conclusion about what happened. You know, oh, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. And you'll hear this also in the context of, well, the FBI hasn't yet said it's a terrorist attack. The FBI hasn't yet declared that this is an act of terror. And I just always want to say whenever they do that, well, that's because the FBI is a law enforcement organization. Um, The FBI is in a position where it might have to prosecute people, even if the perpetrator is dead, they might have to bring a prosecution and they don't want to be in a position where they are um, tainting the case. You know, they, they don't want to be in a position where it could be said that they have taken a, a, a political stand or they've gotten ahead of the facts because they may be involved in an actual judicial prosecution or action or pro- prosecution of the terror act itself. So of course the FBI is going to be slower to say this kind of stuff, of course. And when you look at what's gone on 
with attacks, most notably the Pulse nightclub attack. And you have someone who is on tape saying, I'm doing this for ISIS. I'm acting in the name of ISIS. This is because of ISIS. You know, that's why I'm doing these things. Uh, with all of that going on, and they still play this game of, well, let's redact the transcripts. Let's find some way. Let's take some, um, you know, take some bizarre diversion from what is very obvious here. And they'll redact the transcript and they'll act like we can't all know what's going on here. This is why people don't trust the uh, didn't trust the Obama administration on this and have lost a lot of trust in the bureaucracy. Uh, have lost a lot of trust in the um, the way that these things are talked about this. Uh, the way that these things are talked about. Because if you can't trust the government to treat this as an act of terror uh, right away, and if you can't trust the media to be speaking about it as though it's an act of terror right away, uh, what is holding them back? There's this bizarre fear that they seem to have that if they were to get ahead of the facts in some capacity, if they were to um, push beyond what is provable in a court of law in the initial hours, that they would do some terrible disservice to the public. Meanwhile, you see when it comes to reporting on Trump connections to Russia, when you see the way that they are dealing with that, uh, there are corrections, there's innuendo, there's false reporting, fake news, all of it. But for some reason, and uh, we'll get into what those reasons are, whenever it comes to jihadism, there is this fake uh, pause. There's this, oh, we don't really know what's going on here. And I think everyone has had their fill of that. Uh, the, the government's not as bad about it, although they're pretty bad. But they have their reasons, at least on the law enforcement side, as the media. Uh, but so when Trump says that it's being underreported, I, I think that he's reacting to it. And anytime you're doing a Trump translation, there's the risk that you're really just bending over backwards to explain what may be inexplicable. And I understand that. But I see it as based on what Trump said. He's getting at the concerns that the way the media talks about this, um, the way the media describes these things. Um, shows that for some reason they are uh, unwilling to just be upfront and honest about it. And they play this, we can't know the motive, or let's not jump to conclusions about the motive. And after a few days of that game, which is very boring and unsettling, especially in the really obvious cases, but after a few days of that game, uh, then they'll say, okay, well, we figured out what the motive is, but we're not going to really report on it much. Then there is underreporting. Once it is clear, once, for example, Chattanooga, uh, another example of this, we said, oh, well, is it, was it really a jihadist terror attack? Uh, a guy who had radicalized in, within the Islamic faith went and, and shot up a Navy recruiting center with, uh, with an AR. Uh, yeah, I think, I think it's pretty clear that's a terror attack. Remember, they, they dragged their feet on that one. It was a shooting. I remember Obama spoke about it and referred to it as though it was a, a, a random school shooting, like nothing had happened and it was no big deal. Um, 
I'm sorry, when I say no big deal, not that it didn't matter, but just that it wasn't a national security risk. It was a school shooting or a, not a school shooting, but a, a shooting the way that a, a gangland shooting or uh, any sort of crazy school shooter going postal, th- that kind of situation, and not part of a broader ideology, an ideology that seeks to undermine and destroy us, which is why it is more dangerous and more potent and more worthy of concern than just some one-off thing that happened, and then we should turn around and all complain about gun control. So does the media report on terrorist attacks? Of course they do. But it's also important, I think, uh, to note that the way that they talk about terrorist attacks is uh, completely and utterly uh, influenced by their political position, which is that Islam has nothing to do with jihad or jihadism, that there's no link between the two, and that they, as social justice, I don't like to call them social justice warriors. We like to call them something else, uh, you know, social justice lunatics or something. As social justice concerned individuals, uh, they feel like Islam is a, even though it's the second largest religion in the world, it's a religion of non-white minorities and therefore, it deserves special consideration and protection in this country. Uh, I also think they view it as a counterweight to Christianity and Judeo-Christian tradition and culture in this country. And so they embrace, the, at a subliminal level, they embrace um, Islam in a way that they won't other religious traditions. And I have to say, I've also seen so much of this. Uh, we talk about appropriation all the time, or we don't talk about it, but... The left talks about it, and then I try to make fun of them for it. But there has been appropriation of minority struggles, particularly civil rights struggles, by some of these Islamic groups uh, in this country who act like they are this deeply oppressed under law minority. I would just, I just would find it insulting, especially if I was somebody who spent a lot of time being concerned about the uh, civil rights movement, past and present. I, I don't think that individuals complaining that there might be surveillance going on in a mosque where there's a credible terror threat is anywhere near the same thing as uh, people not having their full rights because of their ethnicity, their skin color. Uh, and it's it should be insulting, one would think, I would think, insulting to the real civil rights uh, struggle and heroes that so many of these care and these types of groups come out and say this stuff. I want to deal with the other argument, which you're going to see in the uh, in the days ahead, which is that the real terror threat is, of course, right-wing extremists. Peace on that, that you, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, it's so off the rails and crazy. But let me get back to it in a minute. 888-900-3393, team. I'll be back right after the break. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Thank you. 
This is the Buck Sexton Show. So this is amazing. There's a piece on Slate, and you, is this, can it really be, you know, it's, it's a piece on Slate that you'll see uh, from back in, where is it, um, November 30th of 2015, and it's the terrorists among us forgets, so this is an old piece, but the most dangerous religious extremists are migrants from North and South Carolina. Yeah, that's right. Christians from North and South Carolina are the most dangerous terrorists in the country. We seem to return to this discussion time and again and go over much of the, I don't mean we, I mean America. We go over much of the same territory. And you'll see some of the most dishonest constructions of, uh, or misconstructions, deconstructions of logic, of numbers, of knowledge. And... It's really amazing. Um, it's really amazing to see. Y- you have all of these uh, journalists who are trying to find some way to explain away the threat from radical Islam. And so what do they do? They say, well, if you take out 9-11, uh, here's, how, here's how the chart looks for violence on U.S. soil at the hands of uh, various extremists. If you take out 9-11, I just want to say... Well, if you take out the bombing of Pearl Harbor, our whole war with Japan doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. And if you take out almost 3,000 Americans killed in one day and the impact that that's had on the way that we approach security and everything else that's going on in the war on terror around the world, well, then sure, it seems like a tremendous, it seems like an overreaction. It seems like we're... uh, not in the right frame of mind to deal with this. But when you do add that in and you understand that the whole purpose of many of our policies and actions is to prevent another 9-11, when you take that approach and then you recognize that there are so many of these attacks that are thwarted but are not, um, there, there are so many of these attacks that are thwarted but are not you know, non-existent, or rather there was a cell that wanted to engage in an attack but was stopped by the FBI, or you go down the list and uh, you say to yourself, okay, well, how many billions of dollars do we spend on this issue, and how many of these attacks have to be stopped by the FBI or some other uh, law enforcement agency in this country before we understand that just counting up the overall numbers, especially excluding 9-11, from those numbers is an exercise in distortion, an exercise, you could say, in, in underreporting or in misreporting. So this is going on still. You know, the Trump team is not adept at, uh, the Trump team is not adept when it comes to, oh, accuracy with the numbers. That's, that much has been established already. But on the underlying substance of many of these arguments, I have to say, I find that Trump is willing to say what many of us know and believe, but feel like we'll get in trouble if we say, and that has a tremendous appeal. It has a tremendous appeal today, and it, it did during the campaign, and it will continue, I believe, to have such an appeal. I mean, I'm going to bring on uh, Andy McCarthy here in a few minutes. We're going to talk about what's going on with the, uh, the ban But we've been told so many times by many of these individuals that 
the ban is um, not about security and it's not about anything other than anti-Muslim bias and the president has exceeded his authority. Uh, I got to say, the more I've read into the decision, uh, or not the decision, well, some of the court decisions so far, and looked at existing case law, this should be open and shut. This should not be a difficult, uh, a difficult call for the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals to make, but they may very well overrule the president on this one, and that would be a shot across the bow for the administration because it would mean that the judicial branch has more or less gone rogue and decided they're just going to be a policy counterweight to Trump. And that, if we're here already at this point in the administration, just imagine what happens in a few years. All right, team, we've got more coming back in a few. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Listening to the Buck Sexton Show. Team, we're joined now by our friend Andy McCarthy. He's a former US, uh, AUSA, Assistant U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York. Currently, he is uh, with National Review and he is a best selling author. He's a contributing editor at National Review. Andy, great to have you. Thanks for calling in. Buck, thanks so much. Uh, please tell everybody what's going on here with the whole ruckus over the. You got these decisions from different judges. It's going to go before the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Can you just, as a process matter first, what is what is happening right now? Where are we today with the Trump executive order banning some immigration for some period of time? Well, basically, Buck, the district judge in San, uh, in Seattle issued a temporary restraining order, which the Trump administration tried to get stayed over the weekend by going to the appeals court that uh, Seattle is part of. The, Seattle is the Western District of Washington in, um, in federal terms, and they are part of the Ninth Circuit. So the government sought a stay of the judge's suspension of the travel ban uh, in the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit declined to impose an immediate stay but they did order immediate briefing. So both sides had to get uh, legal briefs into the court uh, by yesterday afternoon, by Monday afternoon. And today at about six o'clock Eastern time, uh, the Ninth Circuit is going to hear oral argument from the Justice Department and uh, the parties who, who brought the suit in the Seattle case, who are the states of Washington and Minnesota. So that will be argued before a three-judge panel uh, this afternoon. And uh, depending on how that goes, uh, either side, who, whichever side loses, would have a right to seek uh, what they call rehearing en banc, which means a hearing before, in most circuits, it's the entire court. But because the Ninth Circuit is so huge, uh, it has actually 29 um, active judges. Most circuits have something more in the area of 13, 14. Um, they have 11 member uh, panels that, that 
hear cases on bonk, meaning the, for the, on behalf of the whole court. Um, that's a very, very rare thing for uh, circuits to grant. They usually will go uh, with whatever the decision of the panel is. Um, if there is no request for rehearing on bonk or if rehearing on bonk is not ordered, uh, then whichever side of the case lost can try to appeal to the Supreme Court. So that would be the last step. I think that probably the other thing people find interesting today, uh, the three-judge panel, people want to know what is the makeup of it. Um, the There are judges appointed by three different uh, presidents, uh, a Carter appointee, an Obama appointee, and an appointee of uh, George W. Bush. So if you go by, you know, if you assume the uh, the judges work resembles the political proclivities of the of the president who put him on the bench, uh, then, you know, the the Trump administration could be in for a tough time in the Ninth Circuit today. How quickly will we know by the end of today, the oral arguments happen? How long is it before we know what the outcome of those oral arguments will be? Well, there's no law that requires a court to um, issue its decision uh, within a set period of time. But I would note that with with stuff like this, which is uh, you, they're basically asking the court to um, vacate a suspension that's been caused by a temporary injunction, which means uh, if we put aside the lawyerly gobbledygook, we're very, very early in the proceedings because a preliminary injunction has to be followed by a you know a permanent injunction or at least a hearing on it. Um, so very often these kinds of motions or these kinds of appeals are decided on the papers. They don't even have oral argument and a decision comes very quickly. I think the court probably granted oral argument because it's a, it's a case of, uh, important national interest. And there's real question, Buck, under the law about whether the court ought to be involved in this at all. So I think it would be, um, disrespectful to say the least, if the court were to uh, you know, dismiss the Justice Department's or the executive branch's concerns without even giving them uh, you know, oral argument and a, and a hearing. Yeah. Can, can, you, can we dive into that for one know, second, Andy? Because yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no I was, was going to ask you about the issue of standing for, the, for these two states. <laughs> All right, hold on. Uh, let me let me try this again. So, Andy, the, the the two states have brought this suit. How and they're claiming that by not allowing seven countries to have unrestricted travel to the United States under previous visa a previous visa visa regimen that they're gonna what their universities are going to be hurt and their tourism is going to be hurt. I mean, it seemed pretty flimsy the question of standing for these states to sue the federal government in the first place. Yeah, not just hurt, Buck, irreparably harmed. So they're going to be they're going to suffer. Minnesota and Washington state are going to suffer irreparable harm if for a period of four months, people from Somalia uh, are not allowed to come to the United States or, you know, classes of aliens uh, from that country. It's really, you know, it seems to be uh, to be a preposterous claim on its face. But the other thing that's interesting about it, Buck, is it's quite beside the point. Um, this is an area of the law where the court really doesn't have any role. Border security 
is the plenary responsibility in our system of government of the political branches that are accountable to the people whose lives are at stake. That has always been what the law is. And in this area, uh, I, I think what's happening is the law is being conflated with both uh, you know, policy arguments of people who don't like uh, Trump's moves here and people who dislike Trump personally. But if we just you know, ferret out what the law is here, because that's really what the only thing the court should be concerned about, Trump is acting at the highest pinnacle of his legal authority because he has all the authority of the chief executive who from the founding of our constitutional government has had supreme authority over the conduct of foreign affairs uh, and is constitutionally empowered to take action against potential foreign threats to the homeland. Plus he has all the authority that, that Congress can give him. Congress uh, is in our system given supreme authority over the qualifications of aliens to either enter or remain present in our country. And in this instance, they have enacted a clear, unambiguous statute, which in very sweeping terms allows the president to keep uh, aliens or classes of aliens from entering the United States. If in his judgment, which means not reviewable by the courts, uh, he believes letting them in would be detrimental uh, to American national security. So as a matter of law, it's it's really quite amazing that the court is even entertaining this action, much less that they've ruled in favor of the claimants. What do you make of the claim that this is about a, an establishment of religion? I've seen you know, there's so many different uh, orders and justifications and uh, variations that are out there as to why what Trump did is is unconstitutional or illegal or the left has a lot there's when the, and there's so many different arguments i feel like well if it was clear wouldn't one argument be enough and wouldn't it be the same argument but i digress right. but what is is there an establishment of religion is, is there a first amendment argument for non-u.s citizens traveling into this country can't, can't the commander-in-chief say you know what we don't want people from any country we don't want people from any I mean, doesn't he have that ability we're not talking about citizens right he does uh, and, you know, this is the unfortunate part of the public debate here, Buck. And I, I guess this frustrates me more as a lawyer than uh, a commentator. But, uh, you know, people's policy preferences have, getting, have gotten bundled up with a discussion of what the law is. If we just stick with the law, um, the Constitution allows you to do all kinds of things that are stupid policy. So... You know, for all these people who are yelling, it's a religion test. Um, the Constitution mentions religion tests in only one context, and that is you can't have a religion test as a qualification for public office. But when you're talking about aliens who want to enter the United States, that has nothing to do with the religion test as it's discussed in the Constitution. And we can and, in fact, do have some religion tests in immigration law. For example, if you want to qualify as a refugee, it's incumbent on you in many instances to prove religious persecution because our experience, of course, uh, of the history of humankind is that religious persecution uh, is one of the most common forms of persecution and why people flee their homelands. So it's not even true to say, you know, we don't have religion tests in our law because we explicitly do. But as a matter of constitutional law, the president could say, 
uh, we're going to have a categorical ban on Muslims. Now, again, I, I hasten to say, because unfortunately in this atmosphere you have to, I think that would be really dumb policy. But as a matter of constitutional law, the president clearly would have authority to do that because aliens don't have any right to come to the country in the first place. So they don't have any, you know, reservoir of due process or or, uh, bill of rights protections that would be the grist for a complaint that they were being kept out on the basis of their religion. They they simply don't have that right. Uh, Again, I think it would be a dumb thing to do, but the Constitution would allow it. So it's simply frivolous for people to claim that there is a legal right against a, you know, a religious designation in immigration law. And now back here on planet Earth, we talk about the facts. And the fact of the matter is here, the countries and refugees that are involved, we're talking about less than 15 percent of the Muslim population of the world. And we're not talking again about a permanent ban. We're talking about a temporary ban which targets these particular seven countries And it's these seven because as a result of an Obama-era law, uh, these seven were cited as countries that are either designated by the State Department as state sponsors of terrorism in the case of Iran, or in the other six countries have dysfunctional or non-functional governments as, as a result of being hotbeds of jihadism and war ravaged. So, you know, to make it to make it simple for people, Uh, If we want to vet somebody who wants to come to our country, the capacity doesn't exist to pick up the phone and call Yemen and say, you know, what's this guy's criminal record? What's his personal history? You know, we have that capacity with other Muslim majority countries and their regimes. We don't have that with these seven countries. So what Trump is actually talking about is not a Muslim ban. It's a ban on countries or, or the aliens of countries where we have very, very significant vetting difficulties in terms of uh, trying to analyze aliens who want to come here to predict whether they're going to be a threat or value or value added once they get here. Can I just ask you real quick, Andy, before I let you go, what do you think the Ninth Circuit is going to do? You think you think they're going to keep the ban ban? I I think they'll probably rule against Trump. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, I think and this is quite apart from whether you think it's a, a good policy or a bad policy, uh, the law and the courts have become more like super legislatures than legal tribunals. So I, if, if they were strictly going to apply the law and they wanted to get off their chest what they thought of the policy, they would uphold what Trump did, and then they could write a you know write something snide about how stupid they think it is. But instead, what they do nowadays is politics rather than law, So I think the judges are likely, because the Ninth Circuit has a history of this, of substituting their own policy preferences for the president's, even though he's constitutionally responsible in this area. Andy McCarthy is a former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, best-selling author and contributing editor at National Review. Read his latest at nationalreview.com and follow him at Andrew McCarthy on Twitter. Andy, thank you so much for calling us today. Great to have you as always. My pleasure, Buck. Thank you. Uh, Team, we're going to hit a break. We'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network.
Mike Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. Well, here's a surprise to me, at least. Uh, Trump thinks that Obama likes him. Play the clip, please. It's a very strange phenomenon. We get along. I don't know if he'll admit this, but he likes me. How do you know he likes you? I like him because I can feel it. (laughs) I like him because I can feel it. Oh, man. I, you know, it would be a great thing to go through life uh, with just a completely unbridled, a completely unparalleled confidence in oneself. Uh, But it would really only work if you also happen to inherit a whole lot of money. Um, Because then you can get away with it. But it would be fun to go through life really thinking that uh, you are incredibly, incredibly awesome. And yeah, yeah, I like this. This is Trump saying he thinks Obama. Obama likes him. I've got to say, I find that to be highly unlikely um maybe on a on a person to person level they have been able to get along in some of their interactions but then again i don't know obama it's possible that he's less uh invested when it comes to dealing with individuals less invested in his politics than i would i would guess he is but that would that would be a surprise to me but it's really really what what <laughs> i just find noteworthy here is that uh, Trump just thinks that everybody, including Obama, likes him. I'm sure he thinks that Hillary really likes him. I guess Hillary was at his wedding, so there's that. And isn't it interesting that Hillary and Bill Clinton, for the right price, they'll even show up at your wedding. Uh, Hour two coming up to you. Much more. Stay with me. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network.